Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Thridi Omrigar, Professor of English at Case Western Reserve University and a proud City Club member. I am thrilled to introduce today's speaker, writer, Sages Fellow at Case Western Reserve, Ohio's Poet Laureate, and my dear friend, Dave Lucas. Governor John Kasich created the Ohio Poet Laureate Program in 2014 with the mission to provide an opportunity to foster the art of poetry, encourage literacy and learning, and address central issues relating to the humanities, and to encourage the reading and writing of poetry across the state. Dr. Amit Majmudar of Columbus, Ohio, was the state's first poet laureate. Dave Lucas was named to the position on January 1st, 2018. In this two-year position, Mr. Lucas aims to show us how poetry is often already present in our lives, how it thrives in literary communities, and the history of a state that has inspired so many notable writers. A native Clevelander, Mr. Lucas earned his BA in English at John Carroll University, an MFA in creative writing at the University of Virginia, and a MA and PhD at the University of Michigan. He has been an instructor at Case Western Reserve University, the Cleveland Clinic Program in Medical Humanities Learner College of Medicine, the John Carroll Young Writers Workshop, and Sweetbriar James Madison University. He is also a co-founder of Brews and Prose, a monthly reading series that in the six years of its existence has become one of the best reading series in Cleveland, a favorite of the people who attend, to be sure, but also the writers lucky enough to be invited to read there. His achievements have included the Riva and David Logan Foundation For Your Gift Grant Award, the Cleveland's Art Prize for Emerging Artists in Literature, and a Creative Workforce Fellowship from the Community Partners for Arts and Culture in Greater Cleveland. His book, Weather, was awarded the 2012 Ohioana Book Award in Poetry. His poems are anthologized in the Bedford Introduction to Literature and Best New Poets 2005, among many other publications. But these awards may not convey the visceral effect that Mr. Lucas's poetry has on the reader. His words fall on the ear with quiet precision and then gather into a force that can devastate with its heartbreaking beauty. Here is a tiny sample from a, poet uh, from a poem titled, Letter to a Friend. Let us go singing, friend, toward that distance where all is ruins. Do the broken not make music? 
Sing ruin then, sing ruin that it be sweet. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please extend a very warm Cleveland welcome to our Poet Laureate, Dave Lucas. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Thridi, for that generous introduction. I think, frankly, you could have been a bit more effusive in your praise, but I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful nonetheless. Um, truly, Thridi, what a gift it is to know you, a genius of fiction and of friendship alike. Thank you. Um, thank you all for coming here today to think about poetry with me. All of you who by some miracle looked at the City Club schedule and did not say, oh, August 3rd, poetry, I'll be elsewhere. <laughs> Thank you to Dan Malthrop and to the staff of the City Club of Cleveland for the invitation to speak at this Friday forum. Um, I don't think it would have killed you to wear a tie, Dan, but um, the, suit, <laughs> the suit looks good nonetheless. Having attended so many terrific events here over the years, it is humbling now to take part in one of them myself. Um, I had wanted so much to attend in 2015 when President Obama spoke, but I was unable to get a ticket. I see he must have had the same problem here today. <laughs> this is an especially exciting day for Cleveland and for Cleveland poetry because yesterday, uh, Akron native and uh, former poet laureate Rita Dove, who spoke here on May 9th, 1997, received the Cleveland Arts Prize. Um, and I want to say, not only as the Poet Laureate of the State of Ohio, although she's really the Poet Laureate of the State of Ohio, come on, um, and as her former student and her friend, that this is a terrific day for poetry for Cleveland, um, and I hope for her as well. I want to acknowledge State Senator Matt Dolan, who is here today representing the Ohio General Assembly. Thank you for being here. The position of Ohio Poet Laureate is possible at all because of the support of the Ohio legislature, especially Senator Eric Kearney, as well as Governor John Kasich. I am grateful to them for creating the position and to the staff of the Ohio Arts Council for sustaining it. As the second Poet Laureate of Ohio, I follow Amit Majmadar, a poet, translator, novelist, nuclear radiologist, and not to mention husband and father, all of which he does brilliantly but don't worry, I haven't developed an inferiority complex about any of it. I'm, I'm from Cleveland, after all. That's not what we do. Why does Ohio need a poet laureate? A friend asked me, only half-jokingly, when I mentioned that I had applied for the position. I don't resent the question. After all, we Ohioans have no state novelist, or memoirist, or playwright. This discrepancy supposes that poetry is somehow different from these other forms of literature, as in fact I believe it is. If indeed we need a poet laureate of the state, we need such a person to remind us how and why poetry is different and accessible and essential. A poet laureate can serve as an ambassador for the craft of poetry and for the state of Ohio to help readers and writers of all ages use poetry to understand, critique, and improve their lives. For me, this means much more than writing poems, which is good because that's enough trouble in its own right. 
As I see it, the task of promoting poetry requires that we acknowledge, address, and welcome an audience far larger and more diverse than the usual audience for quote-unquote academic poetry. That work should involve, on the one hand, cultivating a more generous approach to what counts as poetry. Most people love poetry as it appears in their lives as songs, jingles, slogans, metaphors, and slang. But too many people distrust poems, if by that term we mean those written artifacts, the hidden meanings of which our teachers once demanded that we decipher. The poet laureate should embrace those forms of poetry that often do not become anthologized in high school and college textbooks. But they should also be able to speak of those indecipherable anthology pieces in ways that welcome readers, or in many cases, welcome readers back to poetry. That is the work of my term, and that is my subject today. One of the expectations of the role is that the poet laureate should undertake a significant cultural project during his or her term, such as bringing poetry to people or a region of the state that might otherwise be underserved in this regard. Today, I'm pleased to introduce that project. You've heard the title already, Poetry for People Who Hate Poetry. This is the name of a general education course I've taught in the SAGES program at Case Western Reserve University for the past several years. Now it will be the title of a syndicated column I am writing with distribution planned through media outlets across the state, free of charge, which, as a poet, I'm used to. <laughs> I am especially eager for the column to appear in local and regional newspapers, online, and eventually as a podcast to meet Ohioans wherever they get their information and culture. Although I remain myself embarrassingly monolingual, I dreamed that the column could be translated into some of Ohio's most spoken languages, Spanish, Arabic, Somali, and Pennsylvania Dutch among them. <laughs> For the moment, however, the most important matter is to write them. I have finished three, and I will debut them for you here today in the hope that in time you will read or hear or even share them elsewhere. I do not know if Ohio, or if any state, needs a poet laureate. But I do believe wholeheartedly that what poetry offers cannot be found anywhere else, and that the work of advocating for it is noble and necessary. This is what I hope to offer to you today. And so what I'll do now is to read the three columns. They're short. Um, and I'll just simply separate them by saying one, two, and three at each point. Poetry for people who hate poetry. One, but you don't hate it. At least that's what I hope you'll discover as you read this column. I don't want to convince you that you should love poetry. I want to convince you that you already do. If you know by heart the lyrics to your favorite song, you already know one kind of poetry. You love another whenever you joke, whenever you laugh at a joke or groan over a bad pun. The jargon of your profession and the slang you speak with friends are poetry. So are the metaphors we use to describe this world we all are trying to understand. For instance, we are so immersed in poetry that to hate it would be like a fish hating water. Silly and exact as that might, inexact as that might be, my simile, this is like that, is a poetic gesture, a comparison that attempts to present an abstract idea in concrete terms. My metaphor might not be good poetry, but it's still poetry. Poetry is a name for the pleasure we take in the language we hear and speak, 
read, and write. We savor words for how they sound and what they mean, the wonderful alchemy of their sound and sense together, even as we use them for the most mundane, practical purposes. We find poetry in poems, of course. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? My soul has grown deep like the rivers. But we find it elsewhere, too. In this column, you'll encounter some traditional and some non-traditional poems. And despite my title, I hope you won't hate them. But I also hope that the words we will share can welcome you to the pleasures and challenges, the poetry of words wherever we find them. Let me offer an example. I've mentioned the college course I teach already, from which this column has evolved. On the first day of class, we introduce ourselves, name, major, hometown, etc. But then I ask each student a strange icebreaker. What, I ask them, is your favorite word? They hesitate. Admittedly, it's an odd question. They look for the door. <laughs> Just pick one, I tell them. It won't be etched in stone. You don't have to get it tattooed on you. So, hesitatingly, and if a bit suspiciously, they do. Serendipity, they say. Defenestrate. They say home. Dream. Their responses often divide them into two camps. Some choose a word because they just like the way it sounds. Others select a word that holds some personal meaning for them in addition to whatever the dictionary definition might be. Readers of poetry tend to divide along similar lines, as the poet and critic James Fenton has observed. There are, quoting now, those who, confronted with what appears to be like a code, insist that they must crack it, and those who are happy to listen to the spell without inquiring too closely what it might mean. That spell, as Fenton calls it, was cast on all of us long ago. It is the spell not only of poetry, but of words themselves. We love the way words sound. We are bound to them by what they mean. Poetry happens in metaphors or jokes or in poems themselves at that place where sound and sense blur into each other. We may not realize that we are under the spell of poetry because poetry is made of ordinary language, if indeed language can ever be ordinary. Some words we use to toast a wedding or to bless the dead. Others we use to order a pizza. Language is the medium of our speech, but also of our thought and of our being itself. So it is natural that we would take pleasure in it. It is also natural to take that same pleasure, not to mention its profundity, for granted. Poetry indeed offers us pleasure, but it can offer much more than that. I believe that poetry can be a way of making meaning of our lives and of the lives of others. We do this with words even as words themselves remain mysterious. Stare at any word for a while, say it again and again to yourself, and it becomes a foreign language. Its meaning bleeds from it, and the word reclaims its original and utter strangeness. Every word was once a poem, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in 1844. Every new relation is a new word. Emerson is being a bit poetic himself here, if not entirely obtuse. I think he means that just as Adam and Eve named the animals in the story of the garden, so we find ourselves always in the act of trying to name our world. 20 years ago, the word bling was just a clever nugget of slang from a half-forgotten hip-hop song of the 80s. Now, thanks to the cash money millionaires and digital media, we find it in the Oxford English Dictionary, 
the definitive record of the English language. I can even type bling into Microsoft Word without worrying about the red squiggly line warning me of a spelling error. It is a part of speech, a kind of poetry. Poetry is a name for the pleasure of language, but it is also a way of trying to name the world. Simple sounds in the air or marks on a page become profound human comedy and tragedy, the scripts for our most beautiful and awful acts. These marks and sounds can be Hamlet or the letter from Birmingham jail. They can be Mein Kampf. How those sounds and marks become something more is a transformation that remains miraculous to me now, some 20 years after first falling in love with poetry. They remain my way of making sense of my world, of myself, and of you, stranger, listener, friend. Not all of us read poems. Not everyone needs poems. I believe we all need poetry, though, because we need language. We need to communicate, and we need just as much the pleasure and meaning it can offer to our lives. Some people find such meaning in their faith, in logic or science, in a career or a political ideology, or some combination thereof. I never found the meaning I needed in those places. I do find it in poetry, in the art of language itself. I find it when Walt Whitman writes, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Or when Toni Morrison says, all water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. This is why I want to share poetry with you in whatever form we may find it. I hope you will find some of it in reading this column. I hope you will find even more in listening to the words you hear and those you speak every day. There and here, I hope you will find a kind of poetry that you can love or even some that you have loved all along. I'll give you a short break, just to, I know, I know that was a lot. To, <laughs> you don't have to, that's very nice, you don't have to. Fill that dead air with applause, I'll take it, okay. Um, two, this is a love story. I don't know exactly where or when it begins, only that it's led me here writing to you about how and why I fell in love with poetry and what I think you can find there too. No story ever gets love or life quite right. We become who and what we become through the uncanny confluence of opportunity and habit, tactic and accident. How easily in hindsight chance and dumb luck and sometimes dumber choices come to look like fate. How grateful I am then for the chances and choices of my sophomore year at John Carroll University in Cleveland. I had dabbled in poetry, as many teenagers do, writing poems about being misunderstood that were themselves impossible to understand. <laughs> I had wondered if poetry might hold something I seemed to need, meaning, maybe, or beauty, or wisdom. But there, in George Bilger's workshop, I began to suspect that poetry might be not merely a passion for me, but also a calling. That spring, too, I fell in love, the romantic kind, the complicated, hopeless kind, for the first time. She was older, brilliant and beautiful, and to my astonishment, she was interested in me, of all people. You know this story already, or a version of it. You know how it goes. Over the phone, I read her the poems I was learning to love. We drove to the February lakeshore and kissed among the shags of ice. Suddenly, all the songs on the radio were about us. 
I was 19 that year, for just a year. Still young enough to find profundity in the pop music that had shepherded me through my adolescence, and only beginning to appreciate the language poetry offered, a language almost sufficient to all that I felt. The first poem we read that semester was Rene Maria Rilke's Archaic Torso of Apollo, translated from the original German by Stephen Mitchell. I'll read the poem to you. Archaic Torso of Apollo. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit. And yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp, in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. As you can hear, the poem offers us images of the headless, limbless sculpture of its title, but also of how the ruined figure of the god of light and poetry might have appeared in its former glory. Moreover, Rilke does not distinguish between what is or is not there. In the poem's language, his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, even the absent can be present. And as George urged us to note, we are not only seeing the sculpture, but being seen. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. I did not understand, but I knew the poem was speaking to me. I did not know that countless poets, countless people had read and felt that same challenge before. You must change your life. I knew only enough, at least enough, to listen. You must change your life. Change my life how? Change it to what? What does this strange, urgent demand have to do with a damaged sculpture of Apollo? What does it have to do with me? I did not know then. Nearly 20 years later, I still do not know. But I am still asking the questions. After the relationship failed, of course it failed. I did become a poet after all. <laughs> I found I needed poetry all the more. I needed words that had never been said. I needed as much to hear them as to say them. I needed someone to say what I felt in words that I could not muster for myself. So when I heard Leonard Cohen sing, I've seen your flag on the marble arch and love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. I understood. And I knew I was understood too. I was seeing and being seen from all places. The semester ended and I went home for the summer. In my old room, posters of Dan Marino and Tupac Shakur, <laughs> photographs from my senior prom looked on instead of an archaic torso. I was shocked to find that the person to whom these things, these effects belonged, had disappeared into someone else. You must change your life. A month earlier, she sat listening at my own poetry reading. She met my parents. She gave me a copy of The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Now it was summer and she did not call. All summer long, she kept not calling. I went to the beach. I bummed cigarettes, snuck beers, sorry mom, 
and waxed, and waxed philosophical. I flirted with old flames, resented them for not knowing the person I had become with her, resented them for not being her. I listened to sad songs, wrote sad, bad poems, and read everything I could except the unbearable lightness of being. And there was poetry, my sanctuary and the stone in my shoe. Suddenly, I couldn't remember a time before it or imagine a life without it. Like Cohen's hallelujah, I was both broken and grateful. Like Rilke's Apollo, there was a new, strange wholeness in what had been broken. Or maybe it was simpler than that, something beyond the reach of a clever phrase and all the years between. A life is not a story. It's too chaotic, messy, and unresolved. We form order from that chaos. I say form because our English words for both poetry and fiction derive from different classical forms of to make, the Greek poesis and the Latin fingere, to, to, to form or contrive. I did not know this then, but while I read and wrote and loved and grieved, I was forming a life. We make language out of sounds and marks. We make stories of our lives in order to understand them and to be understood. We seek the essential moments that seem bridges between there and here, wherever we may be. You probably know all this already, your own version of it. You can maybe remember the moment when you found yourself saying hallelujah for all the broken shards that even the luckiest life is made of. Or maybe that moment is still to come when someone stops you cold to say, you must change your life, which, whatever the story, is where the story begins again. So that's two. And then... You got any for one more? Yeah. Good, because I don't have anything else to fill the time. <laughs> Column three. I never got poetry, someone says to me again, and I sigh. Because I never got it either, at least not until I learned to stop worrying about getting it. In fact, the word get, with its connotation of acquisition and possession, seems to me the wrong one for what we do with poetry. It suggests that a poem is something we take in order to have it or keep it, as if a poem were a half gallon of 2% milk to be picked up on the way home. I thought that was funnier. Should I cut that line? <laughs> that, because that, that got nothing. Okay. What's great about this is you can edit as you go. <laughs> Walt Whitman, a poet I once believed I didn't get, jokes about this approach to poetry in section two of Song of Myself. Have you practiced so long to learn to read, he asks? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Instead, Whitman urges a more sensory, individual reading of poetry. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the specters in books. You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. Whitman mentions another word that often proves tricky for our experience of poetry, meaning. Meaning is perhaps the elephant in the poem's cramped room, especially if that meaning is perceived to be deeper or hidden. If we are supposed to get a poem, its meaning is what we are supposed to get. The poem has whispered us its secrets, the matter is settled for good, and we can move on to lunch and recess. 
You might be all too familiar with this approach to poetry from your own experiences, especially if those experiences took place primarily in classrooms. Too many of us have been taught that poems resemble riddles to be solved rather than music to be heard or meals to be relished. Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems, Whitman asks. And many of us would answer no, because we remember being told that our ideas about poems were wrong, that the author meant something else entirely, and that what the author meant was what mattered most. By the time I got to high school, I was so thoroughly conditioned to seek the meaning of a poem that when I read Archibald MacLeish, a poem should not mean but be, I wanted to demand, but what does that mean? This riddle unraveling strategy might work well on the AP test, but I fear it diminishes the real value of poetry, the pleasure of its sounds, its potential to help us make meaning in and of our lives. I think we need to change our approach. I ask my students to consider the word meaning as a verb instead of a noun. That is, meaning is not something we achieve, arrive at, or get. Instead, imagine that meaning is something we do, something we do together an active process through which we make sense of language and the world. We may like to think of words as having definitions, the way we might have blue or brown eyes. In this model, words mean what the dictionary says they mean. But anyone who has ever argued about what particular shade of blue this or that blue is, navy, midnight, cobalt, knows perfectly well just how slippery words can be. So just as get, is the wrong word for poetry, I also believe that what does a poem mean is the wrong question. Robert B. Pierce, professor emeritus of Oberlin College, asks a better question in an essay called, How Does a Poem Mean? That how is especially important because it changes the way we think about meaning itself. Meaning is not a fixed entity. The answer to some trivia question will never be asked. Meaning changes. Just think about what the seemingly innocent word love meant to you at age eight and age 16, and what it means to you now. If we must think of the poem as possessing a meaning, that meaning is neither the exclusive property of the poet or of the audience. That meaning is a process in which we participate. We collaborate with the poet themselves to bring the poem to life between us. In this model, meaning is not the answer to that trivia question, what is the capital of England? Instead, Pierce writes, to understand a poem is like knowing a city, such as London. To know London is to be at home there, quoting now. There is no set of pieces of information that constitutes my knowing the city, though information is part of the whole. To know London, to know a poem, we must first understand that there is no one thing to know. To, know, to get to know a city, as Pierce suggests, you would need to walk its streets, sample its cafes, eavesdrop on the locals' conversations. You would need to know where the museums are, of course, but you would also need to know how those museums smell, how it feels to stand in the cool marble halls. To get to know a poem, you need to read it, ideally again and again. Better yet, hear it, say it aloud, feel its sounds in your own throat, try writing it out in your own hand. Try it with Robert Hayden's Those Winter Sundays, a poem you might indeed have encountered in a classroom. You might have learned that the poem portrays an adult's conflicted memories about childhood and a distant, if dutiful, father. None of that is wrong, but none of it is enough, either. Instead, say the poem aloud, 
until you can hear in your own voice the crackling of the fire Hayden recreates with B and L and K sounds. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze, no one ever thanked him. Write out those lines until your own fingertips touch the stealthily echoing rhymes of blue-black and cracked, banked and thanked. Then go back and notice that sneaky two in the opening line. That one word allows us insight into years of the family dynamic of the poem. Sundays, too, he writes, this day, like all days, I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. If you can hear it, too, then you have become the poet's collaborator. You and Hayden are meaning the poem yourself. And I suspect you will wince all the more at the heart-wrenching repetition at the end of the poem. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Forget deep meanings. The best stuff is right there on the surface, if we can stop taking it for granted. What's deep is the pleasure we can find if we stop worrying that something is hidden. What's there to get is the sense that the poem belongs to us just as much as to the poet, that we make its meanings together, that the poem can be the place where we meet. Thank you all. Twenty-nine minutes and eleven seconds, according to Dave's phone. Hi. That's a that's a that's a personal record. <laughs> it's so, good. So. Uh, today we're I'm Dan Malthrop. Chief Executive here at the City Club, and today we're enjoying a forum with Dave Lucas, our Poet Laureate, the Poet Laureate of the State of Ohio. We're about to begin our Q&A with all of you. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphone today is Youth Forum Council Chair Teolu Orsanya. May we have our first question, please. Dave, this was a very special forum, thank you. I had a traumatic ex en encounter with poetry when I was nine years old. Uh, <clears throat> my fourth grade teacher uh, coerced me into entering a poetry reading contest. She chose the poem, Trees by Joyce Kilmer. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and it had the word bosom in it. And I was really so embarrassed to say that in public. Yeah. I, I did. I won the contest, but I avoided poetry for the next 40 years until my son Dan introduced me to uh, the work of Billy Collins. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, how do you introduce poetry to children? In my experience, children need the least introduction to poetry um, because they get it in a way that does not need to be explained, in part because they are closer to the beginnings of where poetry begins, which is that um, as infants, we hear sounds being made around us and we're testing out this body that we've got and we make our own sounds. And then eventually we make a sound that someone responds to in a particular way. That's the only way that I can imagine words developed. And so when I do, um, different 
classroom workshops, when I'm doing it with, with preschoolers or kindergartners or first graders, everybody loves poetry because poetry for them is related to that pleasure in sound making. Um, I don't know anybody who says rhymes, oh, I don't like, well, you know what, John Milton didn't like rhymes. <laughs> but his idea of fun was different than mine. So um, uh, we, we have a natural tendency to, to um, listen for those elements of speech that give us pleasure, and often we can't explain that. Um, I think those of us who need to be reintroduced are probably adults. Um, and the thing that really breaks my heart about it is that this process of unmaking somebody's interest in poetry often happens when people would need it most in adolescence. Um, right when you start listening to pop songs, not just as a matter of I'm going to dance to this, but someone has to understand me, and it's not going to be my parents, and it's not going to be my teachers. Um, but someone understands me. Um, I think that, that for me, um, discovering that that was the case in poetry um, was one of the most profound experiences that I had. But I was lucky because um, I got into an experience or a situation where nobody said, figure it out. What is the poem about? I had had those experiences before. Um, but I was very lucky in terms of, of the, the teachers that I ended up with who um, were interested in more than um, what, what multiple choice answer I was giving. Um, and that's not their fault. Um, that's the fault of a, of, of a whole other bunch of things that I'm not qualified to talk about. <laughs> but I think adults need it more than children. I think children are there already. Good afternoon. Uh, I apologize for not wearing a tie. <laughs> this week, The Nation apologized for publishing a poem because, among other things, the poet was accused of cultural appropriation, and the poet also apologized. I'm not asking you to weigh in on this controversy unless you want to. My question is, in this day and age, when someone somewhere is always offended by something and then goes on social media to complain about it, do you find yourself editing yourself and thinking two or more times before publishing a poem because of concerns someone will be offended. I always find myself editing myself and thinking two or more times before I publish a poem, but that's not necessarily a matter of the current climate of social media. It's, it's um, a matter of um, the neuroses of being a poet in the first place. Um, <laughs> The mix between I desperately need to publish this immediately and oh God, no one should ever see what I've, what I've created. But um, I think that the conversation that, to, to which you're referring is one that um, is long overdue in all the arts. Um, and in the case of taking, attempting to take on different voices, there is a, there is a very particular balance to be struck. Um, I think that balance has to do um, more with listening than with speaking. Um, and I think that balance has to do with, um, with attention to the fact that different registers of speech have meant different things to different people for a long time. Um, that almost always has a socioeconomic or political part of it. I mean, we still talk about four-letter words, which are Anglo-Saxon words. Four-letter words are bad. 
because they're Anglo-Saxon words. Latinate words make you sound smart because they're longer. So there's that whole political history embedded into the, the English language itself. Um, I think that the conversation going on about um, what an artist's responsibility is in terms of speaking, um, but also to potential audiences um, is absolutely crucial. And I think that um, the older I get, the more and more I think before trying to publish something. Um, but that's not because of the social media aspect of it. It's because I'm aware of the fact that I'm creating something that people will read. Um, and if poetry, if my poem um, does not make them feel that I have attempted to understand them or someone else in a genuine way, I fail. Um, and that said, I fail all the time. Um, but that's, I think, the way that the work goes. Dave, thank you for your words today. I found your message very empowering. Thank you. Um, and I have a question about the relationship between the poet and the state. Because I really appreciate the notion that you'll empower folks to understand that they do, in fact, love poetry. But historic, I mean, Plato kicked the poet out of the Republic. Yeah. And then Yeats demurred and said, yeah. I have no gift to set a statesman right. New Jersey threw out its poet laureate. And here we are having Governor Kasich invite you back. Yeah. And so at its best, I didn't state, do anything in New Jersey, just to clarify. I am, <laughs> there are no warrants for me in Jersey. <laughs> the, and, and this is a, a nice counterpoint, I think, to the previous question, because at many points, if you succeed in showing people why they love poetry and empowering them to use their voices, they're going to run up against their critics, their dissidents, and people will try to silence them. And people like me are often in the position of analogizing to poetry, saying, you shouldn't let the state silence this person because it's like poetry. And we're giving these cheap defenses. At its best, the First Amendment recognizes the virtues you extol. But sometimes it sounds shrill to say, oh, but it's, it's, it furthers autonomy or furthers personal expression. I wonder what would a poet say to a judge who's considering censoring somebody? What is the virtue defense for poetry? It's usually the best way to get your people to read your books. Um, <laughs> I mean, I say, that, I say that with a keen awareness of um, the suffering that so many uh, writers have, have undergone in speaking to um, elements that the state does not care to have, to have spoken. Um, there's the line, of course, that poets are the, are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. I don't trust that line. Um, my sense is more that poets, and this is George Oppen's line, poets are the legislators of the unacknowledged world. Um, there is that element of poetry that um, insights, excites, radicalizes, and I'm for that. Um, but my interest is in the slow game, um, the way that poetry changes people over the course of a life, over the course of generations. Um, and it's not measurable. Or maybe it is, but if it is, I don't, I don't know how to measure it. Um, because it's so slow and so quiet. Um, but that's what I trust much more, the way that poetry um, changes us over a lifetime. I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm not entirely convinced that reading literature makes us better people. Because first of all, we can't decide what literature is, much less what, what it would be to be a better person. Um, but I do think that, that in poetry, we get the chance to encounter an other, the illusion of an other. Um, and metaphor allows us to take the place briefly of that other 
And that's the only mechanism I know by which to understand human beings other than interacting with human beings. Um, I don't know if the judge in question would buy that answer, but I'd probably just keep talking to try to get right. You know what? I'd let my lawyer talk. God, that's <laughs> usually the smartest. Poets don't know when to shut up. Let your attorney talk. Hi. Um, one thing that you said about poetry not being about getting it made me think about the idea of the unexpressed, what can't be expressed, mm -hmm. and how that has such a, it's a theme within poetry. I think about two texts, um, Audre Lorde, Poetry is Not a Luxury, mm -hmm. how she talks about um, how poetry is this, it's this place where you express something that can't quite be expressed in another way yet. And then, um, I believe it's Ben Lerner, The Hatred of Poetry, where he talks about how um, uh, one thing that's so enticing about poetry is that you're expressing something that can't yet be, that can't be fully expressed in words anyway. And so maybe you're expressing something about love that actually, you know, part of what's, what's enticing about it is that it can't fully be expressed. So I was wondering if you could speak on this idea of like the, the inexpressible and maybe if that has something to do with why people are turned away from poetry. That's a really fascinating question, which is a way of trying to delay my answer to it. Um, well, I try to think of something smart to say. Um, I think that language is always intention in what it expresses with what cannot be expressed. Um, and poetry as, for me, a way of taking pleasure in that language is tied up in that trouble all the more. Um, I wonder if it could be something that turns people away from poetry, but on the other hand, I think it's a way, it could also be a way of enticing people to it because um, there are plenty of things that I didn't understand until somebody sat me down and said, let me give you a metaphor. Um, that's one of the ways that we learn best is for someone to say, don't think about it this way, think about it this way. And if you change the logic of your thinking, what couldn't be expressed here all of a sudden can be expressed in this other way. And the, to me, the miracle of that, and this is probably gonna be calm for us, so forgive me for going on a bit, is that with metaphor, you say, Aristotle says that a, a metaphor is just replacing one noun with another noun. You're just lying. <laughs> you, just, you just say, uh, uh, the, um, the cloud is a whale. But we all know the cloud is not a whale, the cloud is a cloud. But for that moment in which the cloud is a whale, and we sort of agree on that, even though we know it's not, you know, it's, it's not. Um, metaphor has created this different way of understanding by taking the language and doing the opposite of what language does. It says that this does not mean this anymore, it means that. But it still means this, and that. And that still boggles my mind, and that's why I've said it in the most ridiculous, <laughs> rambling way that I could possibly do. Um, so the short answer to your question is yes and no. And, and sorry. Hi, Dave. It's wonderful to have you here at the City Club. How are you? Thank you. Um, I have a question that goes back a little bit to the first question about introducing to kids and also something you said. In all the examples you gave of poetry, it was people um, discovering poetry in their lives, but not in the creation of poetry. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious about this role in your work and also what you believe about poetry as a practice about the things it can bring to our humanity in our own lives um, when practicing creating poetry as well as consuming it. Um, I just met this past week an amazing um, young graduate of John Carroll University um, 
I've been working with him this week with, with Lydia, who's here. Um, his name is Zach, and he's been working with um, a group that does writing workshops in juvenile detention centers. Um, I will soon be doing, I have not had the chance to do so yet, but I'll soon be going into some, um, into some prisons and other, other places where uh, people are using poetry as a way of um, coming to terms with themselves. But I think that's true of all of us. I think that um, Yeats says that out of the, out of the rhetoric, what, what, what does he say? Yeats says a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Yeats says, out of the quarrel with others, we make rhetoric. Out of the quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. Um, if someone brings a poem to my workshop and they want to bring the poem to a place where they can get it published, that's something we can work on. But that's less interesting to me than someone who's bringing a poem and who's trying to figure something out for themselves. Um, I think the opportunity to do that is something that is, that is crucial. Um, and it goes back to the, to the way of thinking of, of poetry as something to be deciphered. Um, it's not a matter of deciphering. It's a matter of writing through until something, something emerges as a writer. Um, I would rather see I would rather see students um, taking a poem that they read and then writing an imitation of it. Um, a lot of times, doing that is a way of finding something that you didn't know you wanted to say. I guess this goes back to the inexpressibility question, too. Um, I've got my high school students at John Carroll writing dramatic monologues this, this, uh, between yesterday and today. And almost always, when, it, when a student writes a dramatic monologue, they end up saying something they weren't capable of saying in their own voice. Um, and yet, it's there, it's them. It's not the character, it's them. But it's both. So yes and no, again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I recently started to become interested in poetry. Uh, while I know what I want to write, I don't know how to tr transfer those ideas to paper. What do you suggest to do? <laughs> Can you ask that again? You don't, you don't know what you want to? While I know what I want to write, I don't know how to transfer those ideas to paper. So I don't, how would you, what would you suggest to do? Um, marine biology. <laughs> um, dolphins are great. Dolphins. Um, no one knows what they want to write. Um, and if they do, it's usually bad. Um, or at least it's not what, what it wanted to be. And the other thing is that what gets written is never what you wanted it to be in the first place. Um, there, I think writers and people generally feel a lot of pressure to get it, to get what's said, said perfectly. But I like to tell my students, you know, look, read, read Beloved, read, read Song of Solomon, and think of how much better those novels were in Toni Morrison's head. Seriously, think, think of what she wanted them to be, and then think of what they are. Now, they're amazing works. Think of, think of Macbeth and what Shakespeare wanted to accomplish with, with Macbeth. Um, what ends up on the page is always a different version, in the same way that the vision that you have for your life ends up a little bit differently than what actually happens. Um, but you end up with something, then, on the page, at least. So um, write. Just write. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, have friends who write. Find the friends who write. 
Find friends, this is Kenneth Koch's old advice, find friends who are so good it scares you. Um, and then compete with them. Not in, the, not in a mean way, but, but have the feeling, find someone who gives you the feeling like, I've really got to work harder. Um, and then you will find that, that, that the work changes too. Um, now all of that you could probably discard entirely if you just read a ton. That's the only true advice that I know. All the other stuff is like maybe, but, but reading, that's it. And marine biology. <laughs> Hi, Hi. Um, my name is Raja. I think we yeah. may have met we at have. a Lake Erie English yeah. before. Yeah, how are you? Um, my question is, I'm a hip hop artist, me and my brother, and we're also Puerto Rican. And I see that in the arts world, sometimes there's this chasm between what's considered educated and educated and what is artistic and what is kind of like lowbrow art. Mm -hmm. And do you think that in the arts world, we will ever get to a point where people of minority people who are creators, that will, they will be regarded just as educated and their voice is just as equal as anybody else or any other artist that does do poetry or does do music and that their voices will be considered equal. We had better. Thank you. We had better. Um, because uh, the work that you're talking about, um, and let's keep it in the realm of literature. Let's say, let's say, um, Let's, let's pick a hip-hop song. Um, often the metaphors, the rhyme schemes, the complexity of something like that is just as complex as anything you would find in John Donne, anything you would find elsewhere. Um, and then sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, but, but we can't put these into, into the curricula because there's violence in them and there's, and, the, and then I think Macbeth. <laughs> there's nothing the worst atrocities that I have read about are either in those old books or history books. Um, and so for me, I think this is a matter of, um, it's a matter of recognizing what poetry is. That poetry in this particular case occurs elsewhere than in poems. It's in poems. You know, I'm all for keep, keep Joyce Kilmer in the anthology. <laughs> But in order to understand the full range of what's possible with the language and with art, you've got to have Joyce Kilmer and the Cash Money Millionaires in the same breath. Because otherwise, you're getting only, only a sliver of the picture. Um, and I think that impoverishes everybody um, who cares about art. And probably it impoverishes though, even those who don't, too. So that's, that's how I would answer that. Yeah. Sir. Yes. What do you feel about the, about the role of brevity in a poem? Um, personally, I like shorter poems because I think they're a challenge to write, um, but also because I'm lazy. <laughs> I, um, one of my teachers, Charles Wright, used to say, if you can't get it said in, in I, I don't know if it was five or six lines, um, you can't say it at all. Of course, he writes really long poems too now, but they're, but they're made up of short five-line five line bits. So um, someone once said it's the soul of wit, right? Yeah. That sounds all right. <laughs> yeah. Is that it? Okay.
today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Dave Lucas, the Ohio Poet Laureate. The sale of Mr. Lucas's book of poetry, Weather, is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our forum, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Lucas, thank you for bringing a little art and culture into our lives today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.